This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. This past week, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its long-awaited decision in Espinoza versus the Montana Department of Revenue. The family of Kendra Espinoza, who attended the Stillwater Christian Church in northwestern Montana, received scholarship money under a tax credit program passed by the Montana State Legislature, which gave donors a tax credit for contributions they made to a scholarship program for kids to attend any school they liked, including religious schools. But the scholarship came to an end when the Montana State Supreme Court ruled the program violated the Montana's constitutional provision that banned aid to sectarian schools. So in a close five to four decision with Chief Justice John Roberts writing the majority opinion, the Supreme Court ruled in Kendra Espinoza's favor, saying that the Montana Constitution violated the free exercise of religion clause of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. To discuss this interesting decision, I have with me on the Education Exchange, Josh Dunn, Professor and Chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. Josh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, Josh, was this a landmark decision or is this just a tweak? I think that it is a landmark decision, but subject to uh, one very important condition, and that is that the five to four majority stay intact. Uh, as long as you have those five votes there in support of it, it will be a landmark decision, or you could uh, envision one of those five votes being replaced, but if it's replaced with someone else who supports it, then it will be a, a landmark decision. I think that it could go down as more significant in the long run than Zellman versus Simmons-Harris. Uh, it could actually have a, a, a greater effect on the education policy landscape in that decision. Well, they explain that one because Zellman, I remember back in 2002 was all, all of us thought that was an incredibly important decision because a school voucher program was uh, declared constitutional overturning or seeming to overturn Nyquist, though ambiguity about that. Uh, so, uh, so Zellman really did pave the way for school vouchers uh, that we have seen uh, in its wake. So why do you say this could be even more important? Well, you of course have to have the decision in Zellman versus Simmons-Harris just to remove the, the doubt, the constitutional doubt about their legitimacy. Uh, but you didn't see the, the spread of voucher programs that many people expected after, after Zellman. And part of the reason for that were these state Blaine amendments, which, which were the issue here in Espinoza. So you had these state Blaine amendments, which forbid providing money to religious institutions, sectarian institutions. And so many states that would have liked to have uh, adopted a voucher program were forbidden from doing so, or they were struck down, as it was the case out here, here in Colorado under, on, under a Blaine amendment. Uh, and so by removing away the state obstacle, I think you might actually end up, in, in the end, getting more voucher programs as a result of this decision than you did out of, uh, out of Zellman. Well, let's dig into this Blaine Amendment stuff. Now, James Blaine, I know, ran for president of the United States back in 1884. He was a senator from Maine and quite an influential figure in his day. And he sponsored these amendments to the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. What was he trying to get? enacted into uh, into law. So he wanted to get added to the U.S. Constitution amendment, much like the one you had in Montana, which essentially said that you couldn't provide any public funding, public tax dollars to sectarian institutions. It was really an attempt by Blaine, who himself was Catholic, to appeal to anti-Catholic animus uh, at, at, at the time. 
But of course, what's interesting is that the very fact that he thought he had to propose this to make it un unconstitutional gives you an indication of what the First Amendment did not forbid, which was actual public funding for uh, rel religious institutions. But it failed at the national level, uh, but it succeeded at the state level. So you have uh, 38, 37 to 39, depending on how you count them, uh, of these Blaine amendments in state constitutions, most of which were adopted in the wake of the failure at the federal level. So the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were added, added to state constitutions. Well, I remember James Blaine was on the stage when some minister, some Protestant minister famously said, the Democratic Party is the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess that's a good example of the kind of attitude people had towards the Catholic religion in that uh, in that time. Oh yes, and you know, for many people, the point of public schools was to essentially force Catholic immigrant kids into public schools, which were really Protestant schools, and and turn them into good good Protestants, or at least. Uh, less dangerous Catholics, right? So uh, Catholics who were fit for the American constitutional experiment or, or so, something like that. And so that was a significant motivation behind, behind them. That's what also then led to attempts, say, in Oregon to just forbid any non-public education, which is really an attack on private uh, Catholic parochial schools primarily. Uh, so it was all, all of this was in the same kind of an, uh, anti-Catholic vein that you had at the time. Well, you know, I sort of thought that was ancient history, but there it is in the Montana Constitution. Although they rewrote the Constitution, they still kept this uh, clause, um, and uh, and there it sits. Now, am I right in saying that the majority opinion strikes down that clause in the Montana Constitution? Without doing so, it does. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, Chief Justice Roberts, he is loath to do anything that doesn't count as minimalist, right? He only likes taking these very gradual baby steps in, in a particular direction. And so he doesn't just come out and say, well, Blaine amendments are unconstitutional. And so lingering out there is this possibility that there's this strange distinction that he made in a, you know, a case from three years earlier, the Trinity Lutheran uh, case between religious status and religious use. And so he says, well, that's still, you know, maybe out there. But in practice, it's difficult to see what's left of, of Blaine amendments. Even the dissenters thought that this, that this decision was essentially killing off, uh, off Blaine amendments. Um, I think it's similar to the Supreme Court's decision last summer uh, regarding the Lemon Test, where once again, the court didn't say, well, the Lemon Test is no more. But in practice, it's difficult to see what's left of. So of what, what is the Lemon Test? Our listeners want to. Sure. So the Lemon Test was an, uh, a test established in the early 1970s in a, a case called Lemon versus Kurtzman, ostensibly designed to determine when uh, a government program or policy violated the Establishment Clause. And it had three prongs. There had to be a secular legislative purpose. There was what the second prong was the effects test that the primary effect can neither advance nor inhibit religion. And then the third prong was that it couldn't foster an excessive entanglement with religion. And the problem with the lemon test was that it was incoherent. It just didn't, didn't work. And this was noted, you know, from the time of, of its creation. And it created all sorts of problems because of the problems with the test. Sometimes the court would rely on it. Sometimes it would just ignore it. Um, and then finally, in this American uh, Legion versus American Humanist Association case involving this cross and public uh, property in Maryland, the Supreme Court appeared to just strike down the lemon test. So, look, it's just not going to, it doesn't really work anymore. But they didn't just come out and say, we're killing lemon, right? Because um, that, that's just really the, the, 
the MO, you could say, of the Roberts court, at least when it comes to the conservative side, when, they, when they're announcing more conservative-leaning decisions, they, uh, they, they tend to be more minimalist in nature. Well, so you talked about the Establishment Clause, and we talked about the Free Exercise Clause. So there's two parts to the freedom of religion element in the First Amendment. And uh, can you just sort of explain the joints that connect those two clauses? Right. So the Establishment Clause, uh, you know, the way the court has interpreted it uh, has been that it should that, that says what does that say? There shall be no yeah. establishment of religion, yeah. right? Right. It says yeah. Congress uh, shall make no Congress law res shall. respecting yeah. respecting an establishment of religion. And the language itself is kind of peculiar, but when you understand their purposes, it, it's not so peculiar. Uh, you you look back at the historical record with the first Congress that was writing the the First Amendment. It was clear that they were trying to do two things with the Establishment Clause. One is that they wanted to prevent the national government from creating a national church in the same way that the Church of England was the official national church for England. The second thing that they were trying to do was protect state established churches, because we had official state churches in the United States until the 1830s. And you particularly had representatives from New England who were concerned about uh, their state established churches, the congregation church being yeah, the church that, that my family goes to so yes yeah. exactly right we, we so, were an established church at one time right an, an official established church so really the establishment clause was trying to protect states from federal intrusion now uh, you know some people argue that the supreme court lost its way including me uh back in 1947 with the case of everson versus board of education which that then raises the question, though, you ask, well, wait, so what is the Establishment Clause in relationship to the Free Exercise Clause? It's actually really difficult to explain what the Establishment Clause means now because of the court's jurisprudence on it. It's just, it's just chaos. Uh, I think everyone agrees that the court's Establishment Clause jurisprudence for the last you know, 40, 50 years has just been impossible to make sense of. Uh, you know, one federal judge in a case out of the Fifth Circuit uh, said uh, on an Establishment Clause case that you know, we're being called upon to interpret the court's establishment clause jurisprudence, a vast perplexing desert. <laughs> so if, if Article Three judges can't make sense of it, what, what hope is there for mere mortals um, you know, like us? So it's actually really difficult. But you, what I think you can fairly say is that in general, the court's posture with the establishment clause has been fairly hostile towards religion. The interpretation- Well, separation of church and state. I mean, right. there's, yeah. there's quotation from Tom Jefferson's letter or something yes. like that. And yeah. so really it has got, at least that's one line yes. of thinking about it is, is you've right. got to draw a sharp and clear line between church and state. And so I'm going to ask you that question. Does right. it have those to violate this, this separation of church and state? Well, I think it, depending on which line of cases from the Supreme Court, you could say yes, right? Although, again, with the... The lemon test was the, the most significant element to kind of still standing that would have stood in the way of, 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 this, of this kind of aid. And since, and since I think the lemon test is no longer a going proposition, um, that now Espinoza, it, 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 you could say that it doesn't violate the court's establishment clause jurisprudence. Um, so, yeah, I. And I think a proper, any proper reading of the Establishment Clause indicates that you know, states aid that's given to parents who then decide where they're going to spend it can't be seen as, uh, as, as a violation of the Establishment Clause. In a way, Zellman uh, handled that. But I 
think the implications, uh, once again, of Espinosa are even broader, right? It could compel even, even greater funding. Uh, and, and maybe not just indirect funding, right, from that's given to parents that then makes its way to a, to a, a religious school. Well, that's um, a question that some people have raised. In fact, Breyer raises it in his dissent. Uh, right. Charter schools, if somebody wants to set up a religious charter school and states are funding charter schools, won't they have to fund a religious charter school? I think that the reasoning of Robert's decision actually points in that direction. Now, Robert's tries to argue that, well, they don't have to, uh, but you know, charter schools are a special case because they are public schools. Uh, and so if you're just uh, providing this generally available benefits, uh, otherwise generally available benefit, what would be the rationale then for restricting it to non-religious uh, charter schools, or at least religious charter schools that promise to operate on some kind of neutral basis? I think, I think it really is difficult to to control the the reach of uh, of the decision, I think I think Breyer is 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 correct about that. So one of the things that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said was, "We didn't have to decide this case at all." There's the the, the uh, Montana Supreme Court said no school, secular nor religious, can have aid under this program. The whole program is unconstitutional. There's no singling out of religion at all here. So how does Robert deal? I find, you know, that's a yeah. compelling argument. Uh, how does he right. deal? So I think the issue here was that the state had already created the program. Since the state had already created the program, and then it was, a, it was, it was really, it was, it was stopped by the uh, Montana Department of Revenue. And then the Supreme Court went even farther uh, and, and really, killed, really killed off the program. So what was happening though, is you had already created this benefit. And then what the court was saying was for unconstitution, unconstitutional reasons, you stopped providing the benefit. That is, they didn't have to provide it in the first place, but once you, once you have provided it, uh, courts can't just come in and kill off the program and say, oh, well now there's no issue because no one's getting, no one's getting any benefit out of it. So that's how, that's how Roberts handled it. So, so the court says, well, we can't give it to the religious schools, so we won't give it to the secular schools. And then, but that, that you can't go down that track is, is exactly right. Yeah. The, the, you know, the place to have stopped it would have been in the legislature. Right, is well, what. There, yeah. So, but then, then there's the Locke v. Davy case, which uh, is mentioned by Breyer. Also, this is the case where uh, it was decided that you can't give scholarships with government money to someone who wants to become a minister. So if you can't, help somebody with a scholarship to become a minister, how can you help them with a scholarship to go to a private religious school? Right, so I think the, once again, the issue here was that, that for Chief Justice Roberts, is you could say, well, Locke versus Davy, this was a very specific kind of training uh, that the money was going for. Going to, this, this man was going, going to become a minister. And this program itself, it was just general aid that's given, uh, it's, it's given to parents and they can choose to, to then, you know, use it at a private uh, religious school. And so there's no, the, the connection there is much looser uh, than you have with, have with Locke, Locke versus Davy. And it's also much, much more general as well. Uh, private religious schools, it's not that everyone that goes to a private religious school is gonna become a minister either. Right? So I think that's also part of it as, as well. It was the very precise nature of what uh, Mr. 
the 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 program and Locke versus Davey was was going to be supporting. So we have a very complex uh, Chief Justice, uh, and he is proving to be that again uh, this term. Uh, we've had the DACA case, the abortion case. We've got Espinoza. So what do you make of his leadership of the court in the two, 2020? Yeah, this is a, it's a very difficult one to pin down. Yeah, there are some people who think that, you know, per, certainly there are some people on the left who are ecstatic that he has sided with them on, the, on particular cases, but they see some kind of nefarious evil genius at work where he's actually laying the foundation for much more conservative outcomes in the future. I tend to I tend to reject that simply because you're not guaranteed of the future with with the Supreme Court, particularly when you have a very closely divided five to you know, you know five to four Supreme Court, four to four, however however you however you want to put it. So, uh, I mean, you can only play the long game so long if you're the Chief Justice. I think the institutional explanation is the best one. That is that he thinks that as Chief Justice, he has an obligation to kind of protect the institutional capital of the Supreme Court. And so where he can, he's going to avoid inserting the, the Supreme Court into divisive political issues that might be, uh, that might matter, particularly right now in the middle of a presidential election campaign. So that's the, that's the interpretation that I think I, I lean towards. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he does think, though, that some of, some of what he's doing is laying the foundation for more conservative decisions in the future. But I also think that he's smart enough to know that you can't count on that. <laughs> well, there is a guy by the name of Dooley who said that the Supreme Co uh, Court follows the election returns. And if right. you look, there's a lot of public support for DACA. There's, there's not much support for abortion, especially this provision down there in Louisiana that was uh, at, at stake. But there is support for tax credit programs. This was not a particularly controversial program that the Justice uh, found. There's probably something to that, although I think the way that this case is going to be played is going to make it sound more more controversial and perhaps uh, increase some pop public opposition to it. I mean, what, what's going to happen, I think, is that the people who disagree with the decision are saying that the Supreme Court has, has just blown a hole right through separation of church and state. Um, and try to ignite some of those fears, then it's just going to be, we're going to have to fund all sorts of discriminatory uh, private religious schools. And so I think there will be some, I, you know, I think that there will be some political blowback from this decision that's at least based, if you just looked at the polling on it, maybe beforehand would have made it look perhaps uh, less politically con controversial. But I, you know, I would just be shocked if Joe Biden to the extent that he can, right, can make, can, can uh, that, that he, he's going to make it, you're going to try and make an issue out of this in, in, in the campaign. Look, Trump judges give you uh, uh, the obliteration of separation of church and state, something like that. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a very compelling issue. I, I really don't. Um, but still, uh, there's more to come. Uh, the, this court session is not over with. What do you, what's still yet to uh, to be pronounced upon. All right, so for education, and, and even more broadly, uh, uh, would be the ministerial exception cases out of California. You have two cases from the Los Angeles Diocese where there were teachers who were fired, and they claimed that they were fired, that they that, that their firing violated civil rights statutes, uh, age discrimination in, in, in one case, and the 
Catholic schools are arguing that their decision is protected by the, the ministerial exception, which uh, the Supreme Court has you know, recognized, but it's a relatively recent uh, recognition. And the, the Supreme Court has never really defined the, the limits of this ministerial exception. So part of the question there is that with these Catholic schools, uh, as compared to the initial case, Hosanna Tabor, where it was a Lutheran school, uh, the Catholic Church doesn't use the label minister, uh, or at least very broadly, where other Protestant, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that's used much, uh, much more widely in Protestant denominations uh, in sects, uh, as opposed to other religions and even uh, the, you know, the, the Catholic faith. And so these teachers didn't have the label minister. Right. They didn't have the label minister, but the schools are claiming, look, they're basically doing all sorts of these ministerial type things that is trying to inculcate the Catholic faith into the students who attend, attend our schools. And so this is a, you know, this is another, uh, another big one. How far do these civil rights statutes reach into the operation of uh, uh, religious employers? Um, well, finally, let me ask you if this is not a win for scholarly research, because uh, for a long time, people were working on these Blaine Amendments and trying to show how they developed and uh, what was the original meaning of these clauses. Uh, uh, Michael McConnell did a lot of work on this. Uh, some historians, uh, Professor Glenn at Boston University, right. did a lot of work yeah. in this. So, um, is this is this sort of a, a sign that really careful uh, scholarship can have a big policy impact? I think so. It's clear that it influenced at least some of the justices on the court, or at least they felt emboldened by this history. You look at Justice Alito's concurrence. What he did there is he just laid out the discriminatory nature behind the Blaine Amendments. And so if you have that at your back, you can show, oh, look, the, the initial impetus, motivation for these was, was discrimination. It certainly helps you politically, right, make the case that, well, the, these things are odious and uh, they fall afoul of, of, the free, of the free exercise clause. So I wouldn't say that they're completely responsible, but they certainly help the cause. Yeah, I just now remember Charlie Glenn, uh, who's written a lot on, on religion and uh, education was the name I was trying to think of. He wrote the book called The Myth of the Common School. And uh, Oh, yes, yes. A lot yeah. of the idea of the common school was basically to exclude Catholics or at yeah. least to exclude Catholic religion from the common exactly. school. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, well, Josh, thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. I have been speaking with Josh Dunn, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. And I'm Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. We release a new podcast on the Education Next website every Monday at noon. Thank you for joining me.